Well, it certainly is sweet to trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to learn more and more to trust Him. And we have the privilege tonight of looking more into the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be in chapter 3 this evening. When Mark chapter 3, our text, the primary part of our text tonight is from verses 7 to 19, and I'll read that in just a moment. But the passage that we're looking at tonight is one of those passages that when you're reading through the Scriptures, perhaps in your own personal time with the Lord, uh, you're maybe reading in Mark 3, and uh, this might be what we call a flyover passage. You have the controversy with the Pharisees at the beginning of the chapter, and then Jesus talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit toward the end of the, uh, of the chapter, and that there's no forgiveness. And, you know, those things dominate our attention. And these verses that uh, are kind of general statements about the ministry of Christ and uh, the choosing of the disciples, and it's kind of like, well, okay, I know these things, now let's get to the other stuff. But these passages, as all of God's Word is, are packed with truth. There's gems uh, for us. They're here for a purpose. Every word in the Scripture is inspired by God, and it is indeed profitable for us. And so tonight, as we, as we read this and as we study it together, uh, I hope that it will really encourage us to understand the importance of the details of Scripture and how they are immensely a blessed for us as we study the Word of God. And, you know, just to, to kind of set our minds in, in gear as we read the passage, if you think of yourself reading the Gospel of Mark as a first century believer, recently come to Christ in a world where Christianity has not spread far, in a world where there is a lot of opposition to Christ. And Mark is writing this gospel for the encouragement of believers, presenting Christ, declaring Christ as the Son of God, that He does indeed have all authority, that He is the Son of Psalm 2, that all the kings will bow down before. And here you are as a believer and your life is in chaos. Maybe you've had to flee from your home because of persecution. Maybe within your home, spouse or children are persecuting you because of your faith. And you're following Christ, you love Christ, and yet you're saddled with with all of this adversity and, and you're facing all of these obstacles in life as a result of following Jesus Christ. And Mark's theme throughout the book is is to remind you, look, Jesus, he has all authority. He reigns. Keep following him. Be faithful. Endure. As the writer of Hebrews says, cling to the confession of Christ. Keep confessing Christ. And when we think about it in, in those terms, we're going to pick up reading in verse 6 of chapter 3 where, where the religious leaders 
and a political party of the day have joined forces to begin plotting against Christ. So you have two very powerful forces of the day plotting against Christ, plotting for the, for the execution of Christ, for the destruction of Christ. And what we're going to find is that in the midst of those plots, Jesus carries on with his ministry, utterly undiminished in his power, utterly undiminished in his authority. He is the authority in the chaos of the masses. He is the authority in the choice of his disciples. He rules. And so let's begin reading in chapter 3, verse 6 of Mark, and we'll read down through verse 19. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, this is the first part of an important portion of Scripture that falls between the conclusion of Jesus' interaction with his foes, and then also one of two main teaching sections in the Gospel of Mark. That begins in chapter 4 where Jesus gives kingdom parables. The other main teaching section is in chapter 13 where he details the end-time events. And so if you think about the the overall context of what's happening, again, Jesus' authority has been challenged and questioned by the, the Pharisees, and Mark is about to record Jesus' teaching. And so what we have from verse 7 all the way to the end of chapter 3, but we're only going to be dealing with what we read tonight, we have Jesus' authority confirmed through his interactions with a number of groups of people. The masses, his disciples, and then later on in the next section, we'll see his family. And his family, in verse 
21 went out to seize him because they were saying he was out of his mind. And another way to translate it would be to say they were saying he was berserk. Uh, They didn't like what he was doing. The religious leaders again say that he is of the devil or he has an unclean spirit. And then his family at the end of the chapter again are trying to seek him and impose their will upon him. And so these interactions through the rest of chapter 3, continue to establish Jesus' authority. And and we have a number of different responses to Jesus within those interactions. And chapter 4 then will go on to, in, in some ways, explain why is it that some people accept Christ and why don't they? And what, what we find and what, what Mark does in the way that he organizes the material is when we get to the teaching of Jesus, we should be utterly convinced that what Jesus says is true beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is the Son of God. He has all authority. And as, as the Father said at the transfiguration, this is my Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. He has all authority. And so Mark is establishing that despite religious and political plotting to destroy Christ, despite even the pressures of family and the opposition, the continued opposition of foes, the Son of God remains undiminished in his authority over all humanity and created spiritual beings. It, It has no effect on who Jesus is. He is the Son of God Regardless, that's the reality. Christ is undiminished in his authority. He is the sovereign authority over all humanity. He is the sovereign. He reigns sovereignly over all created beings. And not only that, there's an underlying emphasis that Jesus sovereignly reigns over all created beings in every place. Mark is taking us to different places. In verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. In verse 13, he went up to the mountain. Verse 20, he went home. All right, wherever Jesus is and whoever he's with, he sovereignly reigns over all created beings. His authority is undiminished. One other aspect to note broadly Again, we're, we're just looking at, at broadly at this section by way of introduction. The passage distinguishes the demands of the masses, the demands of family, and the opposition of foes with the focus on Christ's disciples. And we're going to look at the choice of Christ's disciples this evening But that's what distinguishes his followers from the masses. Jesus chooses his disciples. And the evidence that they are followers of Christ, we find at the end of the chapter, where when his family are wanting to take him out of the pressure cooker, In verse 33, he says, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
So what is it that distinguishes true disciples, true followers of Christ? Well, they're chosen by Christ and they're committed to obeying Christ. The one who obeys the will of God, that's a true disciple. That's a true relative of Christ. And so that is what distinguishes the choice, Christ's choice of his disciples and the commitment of his disciples to obey the Father, distinguish them from the other groups of people who are, who are uh, superficially attracted to what Jesus can do or opposed to him because of the threat that he poses to their priorities. And this is a theme that we find throughout the Gospels, that throughout Christ's ministry, he was constantly winnowing those who followed him by clarifying what true disciples look like, by clarifying the identity of true disciples. And that's true here in this passage as well. And yet amidst all of this milieu of life and ministry, the pressure of the masses, the choosing of the disciples, and, and the pressure of a family and the opposition of foes, Christ, throughout it all, he is righteously maintaining his heavenly Father's priorities. And, and one of the key elements of the Gospels is, is that this is the record of Jesus Christ, the one who is perfectly righteous. And as such, the one who perfectly supplies your righteousness. Everything that Jesus does, every interaction that he has here is entirely righteous. It's entirely according to the Father's will. And, and for those in Christ, that righteousness is yours. That righteousness is the reason that you are able to come before the holy God of heaven with boldness. Christ paid the penalty of your sin, and he also gave you his perfect righteousness. He fulfilled all righteousness while he was on earth. And so every interaction that he has, even within the, the chaos, the seeming chaos of the masses, Jesus is focused and completely obeying his Father's will and establishing a perfect righteousness for his people. And we rejoice in that. And there is one day that all of us will stand before this perfectly righteous Lord. While he was on earth, he was perfectly righteous. He still is perfectly righteous. He's glorified now. And we know that one day we will stand before him. That, that, is, that is a certainty. We have a lot of uncertainties, don't we? We don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. But this I can guarantee, you will stand before Jesus. You will stand before this perfectly righteous one whose life on earth we are now studying. And, and one question that we have to answer, everyone has to answer this. In that day, when I stand before the perfectly righteous Lord Jesus Christ, will I be clothed in his righteousness? 
Will I be clothed in his righteousness, or will I appear before him in the shabby, gross attempts of my own energy to placate God? And, and that will be disastrous. Have you turned to Christ? Right, all, all of this that we're looking at in, God, in, in Mark's gospel, the record of the life of Christ, we, we can bring it right back to Mark's summary of Jesus' ministry. What, what is he doing? What's the purpose of all of this? Well, he came declaring the kingdom of God and calling people to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And, and what a tragedy it would be for us to spend time looking at the life of Christ and yet miss that central element of his ministry. He came declaring, repent and believe the gospel. And, and it won't matter how much we know about Jesus' life from the gospels how many details we understand, how many nuances we captured if ultimately we haven't seen the glory of Christ and fallen on our faces undone before his majesty and holiness and righteousness and confessed, I'm a sinner, I'm undone. My only hope is your righteousness. And so may the Lord help us even tonight to do that as we consider this portion of Christ's ministry. The theme that we'll work with this evening is very simply, Jesus sovereignly reigns over all created beings. Jesus sovereignly reigns over all created beings. And we'll divide the portion that we're considering into two Sections. Point number one Jesus reigns in the chaos of diversity and desperation. And that's from verses 7 through 12. Jesus reigns in the chaos of diversity and desperation. And then, second, Jesus reigns in the choosing of his disciples or in the choice of his disciples. Jesus reigns in the chaos of of diversity and desperation, and Jesus reigns in the choice of his disciples. So let's go back to the section here in verses 7 through 12 and consider this glorious reality that Jesus reigns in the chaos of diversity and desperation. Many are coming to Jesus. Look at verse 7. As he withdraws from the, from the conflict there, there in the synagogue, a great crowd followed, and they're from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And again, he repeats, a great crowd heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. Many are coming to Jesus because they heard what he did. And in this passage, this passage reflects the, the superficial attraction 
of the masses to Jesus. They heard what he did. There, there were all, all these things that they heard. He healed people. He was casting out, out demons and he was teaching with authority. He, he was a unique figure of the time and, and so people flocked to him. They heard what he did and they came to him. And that, that phrase there in verse at the end of verse 8 is important. Again, look at it. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Superficial attraction. Now, I want to show you a contrast in the next passage that we'll come to later, but let's just set up the contrast. Look at verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Do you see what's happening here? The masses, they heard what was done, and they came to him. But the contrast with the disciples is that Jesus called them to him, or called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And so what, what we're seeing here is a contrast between a superficial attraction to Christ and a supernatural appointment by Christ. And that's critical. There are many, many people who are attracted to Christ. There's a superficial attraction to Christ because surely he does do great things. But as all of the Gospels record, the, the masses, the crowds, were very fickle. They were wafflers. And, and when the teaching became hard, for example, John chapter 6, when Jesus said, you have to eat of, of my flesh and drink of my blood, right? many disciples left him. And so Jesus, again, is constantly winnowing and, and clarifying what it means to truly follow him. So what we find, though, is even as, even as these masses are, are coming to Jesus, uh, the details help us understand what's the, the significance of what's happening. Look at the locations that Mark records for us there in verses 7 and 8. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now, we read those things, and this is one of the reasons this becomes a flyover passage. It's like, okay, I have no idea where those places are. But what we find is that Mark has recorded the first four locations in, in an order that, that move from the north to the south. So you have, again, Galilee is, is in the north of Israel, then down to Judea, then a particular city, Jerusalem, and then south of that, Idumea. So let me just give us a, a geographical comparison that we're familiar with. It would be like someone saying people gathered from Detroit and from Cincinnati and from Lexington and from Knoxville, right? That's the picture that we have. And then the other two, the last two locations from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon move from east to west. So beyond the Jordan, uh, most of Israel was to the west of the Jordan in between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. 
And so from beyond the Jordan is referring to an area to the east of the Jordan. And then Tyre and Sidon was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so again, to just give us a a couple of geographical locations we're familiar with and kind of create, replicate the picture in our mind, it would be uh, like saying people gathered from Detroit, Cincinnati, Lexington, Knoxville, and from Columbus and Chicago. And the, the idea is you have this whole region represented, many people from all of these places and the, spe- the specificity that Mark gives to us amplifies the greatness of the crowd. I mean, there are all these people from all these different places flocking to Jesus because they've heard of, of what he has done and his ability to heal and deliver people from unclean spirits and, and from demons. And, and that brings us then also to, to consider briefly the desperation of the crowds. In verse 9, He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. The, the picture that we have in these, in these statements is that there, there are people that are here around Jesus from all of these di- different places, and they're here because of the, of the physical desperation out of, out of grotesque diseases that they have. You know, there are these, these popular dramatizations of Scripture, and it's very interesting to me that... Uh, Everybody looks really good. I don't watch them, but if you, if you look at the billboards and stuff, you know, it's like picturesque people. Folks, that's not how it was in Jesus' day. In fact, Jesus himself in Isaiah 53 were told he was not even physically attractive and desirable. And when we think about the diseases that people had, Right again, in our Western mentality, we we have we have hospitals where sick people go. We we are exposed so very little overall, generally, to the horrible, grotesque nature of disease and sickness. Some of you know that I spent a couple of years in, in Swaziland when I was a child with my dad while he did uh, medical work there. And walking through those wards in an African hospital, it, it was grotesque. And, and seeing some of the things that my dad did on occasion, that was grotesque. The inside and the outside, it was grotesque. And this is what's happening. And in, in, in this world, diseased people lived at home. Right? You, you, didn't have, you didn't have places for people to go and treatments. There was a, a terrible physical desperation when you, when you had diseases. You, I mean, you were really sick and you had no hope. And, and so you can imagine if someone has healed people and, and, and you have absolutely no other place to go, the, the desperation of the cascading crowds on Christ with these horrible diseases. 
and sicknesses and no hope. And then add to that those with unclean spirits, the chaos of this scene, and sure, they're confessing Christ, but even the demons believe and tremble. It's not a believing confession, and that's why Jesus silences it. It's not time for that confession to be made, and, and demons, demons only do what is malicious. And so Jesus is silencing the malicious confession of demons, but the, the spiritual desperation of people with unclean spirits and the physical desperation of people with diseases and nowhere to go, nowhere for them to be treated, there is, there is much desperation within this scene before us. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of, again, from verse 6, the plotting of the religious and political groups, in the midst of the chaos of, of the crowds pressing in, we see still the authority of Jesus. And we see it in two very simple statements or records. In verse 9, in the midst of this chaos, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now, Jesus was compassionate. He was compassionate to the masses, and we have this, we have this stated for us in many places. Yet at the same time, these crowds of, that were superficially attracted to Christ were an obstacle to the priorities of his ministry that we're going to find in, in the next portion here. And so as they're pressing against him, Jesus knows that they have to have preparation to, to move away for their own safety. And so he commands his disciples to prepare the boat. And then at the end of the passage, in the midst of, of this chaotic scene, even as unclean spirits are, are shouting, and, and confessing Christ, he continued to silence the demons. Verse 12, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So with, within, within the chaos of, of the diversity and the desperation, Jesus is still reigning. He's, he's undiminished in his authority. He remains absolute in authority. The, the chaotic press of the masses did not, did not in any way affect his ability to deal with sin or to silence the demons. He's in control. Now, why is that? How can he do that? Well, if we think about it just from the broader perspective of, of Scripture, as his enemies were plotting against him, as the masses were pressing against him, who was giving them their breath? Who was upholding their life? Was it not the Son of God who upholds all things with the word of his power? He's undiminished. He's giving life to all of these people. 
his enemies, those who were superficially attracted to him and his disciples. He, he's supplying their life. There's an important lesson for us within this that in all the chaos of life in a fallen world that's permeated by sin and under the curse and where the prince of the power of the air organizes his diabolical forces against the Lord, the ruler of this world organizes his forces against the Lord, there, there's nothing, there's nothing that is outside of the control of Christ. And we, we can go back to Genesis chapter 11, and, and let's do that briefly. And as you're turning there, let's just expand what's happening here. Again, thinking about the, the geographical diversity of places where all of these people are coming from and, and also the, the political tensions that are represented by, by those places that were mentioned. I mean, th- this is Israel in Jesus' time is, is, a, is a political hotbed of all kinds of issues. They're under Roman control. Herod the Great was, was in power under the Romans when Jesus was born. He died. The kingdom was split among his different sons, but Rome had to take one of them out of power because he was a threat to Roman security. And there's all kinds of political turmoil. There's all kinds of injustice that's happening. There's centuries and centuries and centuries worth of war and fighting and slavery that's represented in in these geographical locations from where all of these people are flocking. And, and, you know, let's just make a a simple point here. If if Jesus was here to establish a, a, a social, temporal social justice, this would be the right place for that to be expressed in the Gospels. It's ripe. The diversity of the crowds, the desperation of the crowds. So why isn't Jesus calling for reparations? Why isn't Jesus calling for there to be equality and equity entirely? Well, if we go back to Genesis 11, what we find is that the chaos of diversity is something that God initiated. Look at verse chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a place in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord dispersed them. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So the Lord disperses the nations. And this is as a result of, of their attempt to, to create an artificial means to get to God. In Genesis chapter 3, God barred the way from the tree of life. And ever since that point, mankind has been attempting to find a way to get back to God, to get to the tree of life on his own terms. And the Tower of Babel is the expression of people attempting to get to God on their own terms. And God says, no, I'm going to disperse them. I'm going to scatter them. And it's out of the scattering of the nations that the, in the next chapter we find that God appointed one man, Abraham, who then would be a blessing to all the nations. In you will all nations be blessed. And early on in Revelation, God establishes, God establishes that the blessing of the nations is not through some kind of, of artificial reconciliation that fails to deal with the guilt of individuals before God. Ultimate blessing comes through God's appointed means, comes from the fulfillment of his promise that he would provide a seed from the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And from early on in Genesis, we find God's systematic preparation as nations and empires rise and fall until that promise is fulfilled in Christ alone. And it's in Christ alone that there is blessing and that there is ultimate reconciliation. And, and I'm just going to put this on, on our minds. We're not going to go in depth with it this evening. But if we go all the way to the book of Revelation, what we find is that there is a multitude from every race and nation in heaven singing praise to God. And who are those people? They're those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And when we come to the last chapter of Revelation, we find that those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb from every nation and tribe and people, they're there in the eternal state. And what do they have? They have access to the tree of life through Christ alone. Because the ultimate problem, the ultimate problem is not the oppression and the victims and the victimization, those are problems and those are symptoms 
though, of the ultimate heart problem of sin and guilt before God. And when Jesus came to earth, he did not come to provide an artificial reconciliation. He came to provide forgiveness for sin so that there would be an ultimate reconciliation between man and God that would culminate in eternity in the presence of God with access to the tree of life in the presence of God, in the presence of the, of the Lamb forever and forever and forever. That's what Jesus' mission was. And so when we consider, when we consider what is happening in Mark and why Jesus, when he's confronted with, with this diversity and the desperation of, of people, why he says, you know, let's get a boat, and, th- and then he withdraws to a mountain. What, what's happening? Well, Jesus came, he came to provide salvation from sin, and he is intent, and he will fulfill that role. He did fulfill that role. But as we think about what Jesus did and how he maintained his priorities, how he maintained obedience to the will of the Father within this chaotic scene, it is important and it's comforting for us, is it not, that with, within the chaos of our lives, whatever it might be, the relational chaos, the, the chaos of economics, global uncertainty, Christ reigns. Christ reigns. Jesus reigns in the chaos of diversity and desperation, and he is reigning in such a way that his purposes are being fulfilled. Well, now we go from the chaos of the seaside to the mountain, Jesus reigns in the chaos of diversity and desperation, and then we find here also that Jesus reigns in the choice of his disciples. Verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, and then, and then he names them. As Jesus retires to the mountain, he selects those who come with him. The disciples came at Christ's summoning, and so again, we see the, the contrast between the superficial attraction to this supernatural appointment. Now, when we come to to this portion, questions arise. Well, is is this where the disciples are saved? Is this where they're called? You know, what's the significance of of what's happening here as Jesus uh, calls to them those he desires? He appoints them as the 12. Well, I think that we can properly understand this passage with three easy subpoints as we think about Jesus reigning over the choice of his disciples. First of all, Jesus does convert disciples. Jesus converts disciples. Now, 
We have a record of five of the disciples being called by Christ already in Mark. The four fishermen and Matthew, the tax collector. But we don't have any record of of the other men. And so do we know when they were ultimately converted? No, we don't. In fact, the Gospels often are, are vague as to when someone actually, the disciples in particular, when were they actually converted? I don't know, but I know they were. And I know they were converted by the effectual call of Christ. He called them and they came. And those who follow Christ are effectually called by Christ. They're called out of the masses that are superficially attracted to Christ. They're called by by a supernatural appointment and made a new creature in Christ. And this is true of the disciples as it is for every other follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus converts disciples. Jesus also calls disciples to service. So he converts disciples, he called them to be with him, and and that's what it is to be converted. Anyone who comes to Christ, right, it's, it's not a call to an idea, it's not a call to a set of facts, It's a call to be with Christ. It's a call to the person of Jesus Christ. It's a call to be submitted to Christ. It's a call to rest entirely in Christ and in his work and and in what he has done for redemption. He called them to be with him. This is the call of conversion. And he calls his disciples to service. Again, look at verse 14. He called, he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Jesus converts disciples and Jesus calls disciples to service. And again, this is paradigmatic for, for everyone who follows Christ. We're changed to be a new creature in Christ, but we're changed to be a new creature in Christ so that we can serve our Savior and our Lord and our King. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that we were called to good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not called just to sit back in our lazy boy and be thankful that, well, at least I'm not going to hell. That's, That's not Christianity according to the Bible. We're called to serve Christ Jesus converts his disciples. Jesus calls disciples to service. And and again, we know that that these disciples uh, were distinguished in verse 35 as those who did the will of God. They were obedient to the will of God. And then Jesus, third, constructs his church. He converts disciples, he calls disciples to service, and he constructs his church. And we have the, we have the foundation of the church being laid in this passage. 
Mark records that he appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles. He repeats it in verse 16, he appointed the 12. And the word appointed is interesting there. It's a word that can be translated, he made, he created. In other words, he created a brand new office. John MacArthur notes that this likely was in judgment of Israel. Twelve tribes who rejected their Messiah, and Jesus creates a new office of twelve apostles, and their names, we're told in Revelation 21, are going to be on the foundation of that city, New Jerusalem. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says they are, the, the, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. They're the foundation of the church. Jesus constructs his church, and he does that foundationally through the apostles. Now, I want to give you a very simple way to identify some false teachers. There's a lot of false teachers. It's hard to, to identify, but there's, there are some that it's really, really simple to identify. Anyone who claims to be an apostle is a false teacher. You can only lay a foundation once. And the apostles are the foundation. And there are three qualifications that we see through Scripture that define who the apostles are. They were chosen directly by Christ. They were able to perform signs and wonders. And we see that uh, there in verse 15, they had authority to cast out demons. We see that also in the book of Acts. The significance of that was that they were, they were establishing their authority as the foundation of the church. Chosen directly by Christ, able to perform signs and wonders, and they were third eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Those are the marks of a true disciple, the own, or a true apostle, the only apostles that are the foundation of the church. MacArthur in Biblical Doctrine summarizes the apostles' role in this way. The apostles, the New Testament apostles, were Christ's authoritative revelatory agents. They were the ones that God appointed to lay the foundation of the church. And so what we have as Jesus calls his disciples, we we have the, the, the beginning of the laying of that foundation for the church. But it's imperative, it's imperative for us to recognize about these men that they were sinners who needed salvation. And so they were converted and they were called to service in a similar sense in the way that every other follower of Christ is, but they were uniquely appointed by Christ to be the foundation of the church. So we understand that the apostles were sinners who needed salvation and also to understand that the apostles fulfilled a unique and unrepeatable purpose in the New Testament church era as the foundation of the church. Well, in this passage, 
we see that in the mounting pressures of public ministry, Jesus maintained a steady course of following and carrying out his Father's will. People wanted him to heal. They wanted that to be his ministry. His enemies wanted to kill him. But Jesus carried out his Father's will, and he did so in a way that his authority, demonstrating that his authority was absolutely undiminished. He was the authority over the spiritual realm. He was the authority over humanity. He was authority in the chaos of the masses. He was the authority in the choice of his disciples. Jesus sovereignly was reigning over all created beings. And so as we conclude tonight, just a few final observations. First of all, again, I've mentioned this already, but it needs to be, it needs to be repeated. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, even in the chaos of the masses and in the choice of the apostles, including Judas. You might have thought I forgot Judas. I didn't. Including Judas. How, how does our passage end in verse 19? And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Was that an accident? No. That was Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. As we get into the passion narrative, ultimately that Judas was an instrument that God used to carry out his purposes, even in the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in the chaos of the masses and in the choice of the apostles. And that brings me to a second observation. The presence of a betrayer does not indicate failure but is the fulfillment of God's purposes and is a demonstration of Christ's authority. When an evil person slips in, when you have to deal with evil, sometimes, sometimes we can interpret that, if, if we're leaning on our experience, we, we can interpret that as failure. But that's not always the case. Because here is Jesus Christ. He's appointing those that he is going to invest himself in for three years, and Judas is one of them. Because it was part of God's purposes. And so, ultimately, Jesus does reign over all created beings, and when we take the conglomerate of what we see in this passage... We can rest in the fact that no matter what is going on in life, no matter how intense the circumstances are, from disease, from the physical aspects, from the emotional aspects, from the spiritual aspects, I mean, we're in a spiritual warfare. That's real. This is intense. This is real. No, no matter how intense these things become and how chaotic life seems, Christ's purposes are being fulfilled because he reigns. He reigns. And, and this is so important for us. 
It's so important for us because it's the foundation that, that, when, that when life narrows and squeezes us in and, and we wonder what is happening and is it worth it at all, when we remember that Jesus is sovereignly reigning over everything, Jesus is sovereignly reigning over all created beings, he's put every person in my life in my life. No one's here by accident. And if there are things and people that I don't have in my life that I want in my life, well, they're not there by accident either. It's part of God's plan. He is sovereign over this whole thing. And and when I understand that, it relieves the tension so that I can walk in humble obedience and leave the outcomes to the Lord. Because Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. Have you turned to Christ? Is he your Lord? Has he cleansed you from sin? Or are you simply a superficial follower of Christ? I hope not. But the invitation is open. Come to Christ. And for those of us that are in Christ, what what joy, what peace we have to know that our Savior reigns And ultimately, one day, we're going to be face-to-face with him for all eternity, free from the very presence of sin. Praise his name. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the word of God that records his life and his work and tells us that we must turn to Christ and tells us how to live for Christ. Oh Lord, you have blessed us with so much and we thank you. Now may we take the word of God and may we be doers of what we have heard tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.